Welcome to Parallel Worlds Audio Issue 3, November 2019. Word for word, the articles that appear in this month's Parallel Worlds magazine. Editorial It is often said that conversation can be ranked into three tiers. At its most basic, it revolves around people. Middling conversationalists discuss events, while the truly interesting discuss ideas. This is the value of science fiction, fantasy and horror. Many, many books and films deal with people and their relationships. Uncountable more deal with events. But it is these genres that tackle the biggest ideas. What does the future hold for our species? What else is really out there? What might our society look like in hundreds of years' time? The stuff in this issue tackles lots of ideas. We continue our evaluation of the legacy of Star Trek and its uniquely optimistic view of the future. We discuss two seminal video games and the universes created for them and examine the tropes of portraying aliens in games generally. We pan for gold in the torrent of today's self-published literature. We take a look at one of the world's biggest horror film festivals. Okay, that's really an event, not an idea. And we have our usual clutch of original fiction, board game, TV and book reviews and mini of the month. The response to our first two issues has been brilliant. How best to enjoy them? A full A4 magazine format doesn't translate naturally to every screen. Personally, I like to read it on my tablet. It's about the right shape, and I can pinch to zoom to my heart's content. This month also sees the launch of the Parallel Worlds podcast, a fully voice-acted audio version of our monthly magazine, expertly edited for listening around the house and while you're on the move. While initially we had planned to make the podcast a patron exclusive, we've now decided to make it available to all. How are we doing anyway? We'd love to hear from you. Tweet us at PWorlds Magazine or drop us an email to editor at parallelworlds.uk. Stay fantastic. Interview Carsten Dam of Vagrant Workshop. Every month, Parallel Worlds features an interview with an amazing content creator or personality working in science fiction, fantasy, or horror. This month, we catch up with role-playing game creator Carson Dam, erstwhile lead developer of Earthdawn, creator of Equinox, and finder of Vagrant Workshop. Carson is as old as the mother of all role-playing games itself. He was born in 1974. He lives in Cologne with his wife and three children. He's been known as Dammy since childhood. I've been in Cologne now for almost two decades, he told us. It's a nice place to live with an active gaming scene. My current group is mostly about testing various indie games, so we play a lot of different titles. He started playing role-playing games in the 1980s. A friend who'd visited London introduced him to Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. There were just a few other kids playing pen and paper games out there, mostly the Dark Eye, our native generic fantasy incarnation of the hobby, he said. Warhammer struck him and his friends as an odd importer, mighty hardcover tome written in English. My desire to understand the game actually helped me to better understand the language, a sure bonus in school, he remembers. The game that inspired him to make role-playing games himself was Earthdawn. It was the first title that really clicked with me, he said. Earthdawn inspired me to write, 
and I discovered that self-publishing was something I really enjoyed doing. He started to write fan work for Earthdawn in English as well as in German. A decade later, his reputation opened the door to work as lead developer and editor of that game for two major editions. Carson is now the owner and operator behind the Vagrant Workshop and the Pro Indie labels. I had a number of side projects while working on Earthdawn and always felt that helping other authors getting published was a good thing to do, he explained. Vagrant Workshop is a small company with an international pool of talent. Some of them stuck with us after quitting Earthdawn, while others joined to let their own creative energies vent, he explained. We take an it's-done-when-it's-done approach to everything. We never understood our publishing as a way to make money, but as a hobby we follow with dedication and heart-blood. Words, artwork, layout, print prep and project management are all managed across international borders. I'd like to refer to my desk as global headquarters, but the truth is that we're working online pretty much all of the time, he told us. Meeting up is a rare thing due to the distances involved. Equinox, a role-playing game in a future fantasy setting, is the game that's closest to Carsten's heart. It was the first project that the newly established Vagrant Workshop took on. Due to my work on Earthdawn, Equinox had always been on the back burner, so it was a natural step to pick up Equinox with more time and more energy at hand, he explained. Equinox is a mix of sci-fi and western magic in space. The setting focuses on the war-ravaged and lawless Sol system and the shattered remains of Earth, now known as the Earth Belt. The characters are restless outcasts and misfits living on the fringe of galactic society. The basic setting encourages stories with an emphasis on space battles, fighting the forces of evil, and carving out a living on the edge of the universe. The characters in this future fantasy space opera game are larger than life, outcasts wielding mystic powers and relics. Despite considering a pirate-focused direction initially, the team settled on a setting which combines a wide range of classic science fiction styles and ideas. As Carson explained, Despite its inclusion of the fantastic and mystical, it provides rationales for many tropes of the genre. Many of the ideas in Equinox are common in science fiction, and the setting draws inspirations from Farscape, Firefly, Alien, Babylon 5, Titan AE, Deep Space Nine, Battlestar Galactica, Star Wars Dune, Pitch Black, and the Chronicles of Riddick, amongst others. While the introduction of mystical energies takes the world into the fantastic, these energies obey strict scientific rules and vary in power, depending on location, Carsten explained. There have been quite a number of games with a future mystical setting over the years, like the video games Destiny and Warframe, as well as the role-playing game Starfinder. Equinox probably shares some roots with all of them, said Carsten. The various games released by Vagrant Workshop and Pro Indie have very different systems and themes behind them. Carsten explained that this is due to having different authors and the desire to have a varied portfolio. Role-playing games have great variety, not just in terms of setting and mechanics, he said. Pen and paper is a vast and exotic gaming genre. We hope to capture some of that and show that the genre's fringes can be just as exciting as the bigger lines out there. 
Carson originally wanted to become a novel writer, but never really chased that goal. Instead, he found that he has a knack for providing frameworks to bring your setting to life. I love creating such frameworks and the rules to make them tick, and finding out how people use these to create individual stories, he said. Vagrant Workshop have three books for Equinox coming out, soon two of which are thanks to backing on Patreon, and the other Carson wrote himself as a lead-in to those. He's also working on some German-language products for Vagrant Workshop's pro-indie label. Their translation of Itras B won the German Roleplay Award for Best Rulebook of 2019. Carson prefers working in German at the moment, but is used to writing in English too. The biggest limitation he finds with running a small company is the limited budget. We don't have the sales figures needed to have artists paint our dreams, so getting quality artwork and making high-quality products is always a challenge, he told us. However, we've always managed to overcome that hurdle and seem to be doing quite well. Though video games do inspire Carson's games, he doesn't have as much time to play them as he'd like. As a fan of the role-playing game Cyberpunk, he's very excited for the upcoming CD Projekt Red release of Cyberpunk 2077. He also loves Portal 2 and Grand Theft Auto V. Would he make Equinox into a video game? If CD Projekt Red approached me, I certainly would, he said. However, without the backing of a game studio, Carson can't see Vagrant Workshop going into video games. As well as Cyberpunk, his favourite role-playing games are Warhammer and Star Wars D6. These are the games I would play and run any time without asking questions, he said. He strongly prefers running role-playing games to being a player himself. I find out that I'm an ugly power gamer if I don't run them, he told us. As evidence, he told us about a game of Shadowrun that his friend ran, during which he harassed them with an invisible swordsman character. I'm glad that we're still friends after all these years, he said. Equinox, published by Vagrant Workshop, is available to download now. Why aren't aliens in video games more alien? Aliens are a staple of sci-fi and seem like they've always been a cornerstone of our fiction. Chances are, if you were asked to make a list of all the aliens from popular media that you can think of right now, your list is going to feature quite a few that looked or act pretty much like a human. Now, there are a lot of good reasons why this is the case, especially because most of our well-known aliens come from TV and film, but what about video games? Video games are our newest vehicle of fiction. Developers now have the tools to create near-real environments and allow players to interactively experience anything imaginable. Consumers have the purchasing power to bring video games into their homes and experience them whenever they like, for as long as they like, and virtual reality has the potential to drive immersion even further. Today, the gaming industry is worth more than either the film or music industries worldwide, and games are more accessible now than ever before. We're in an unprecedented era of choice and creativity. Over the years, important topics like violence, representation and gambling in games have been discussed extensively. 
depictions of aliens in games is a trivial consideration by comparison, but thinking about why we depict humanoid aliens in games and how they're used is a small part of a larger, ongoing discussion of how any media reflects and reinforces our thinking. Of the many millions of separate species on Earth, only humans look and behave like humans. Our closest relatives, apes, are more dissimilar to us than many of the humanoid aliens in popular sci-fi, yet they evolved right alongside us from common ancestors. Most scientists, biologists and thinkers on the subject of extraterrestrials agree that aliens, if they exist, are very unlikely to be something you'd feel comfortable inviting to meet your parents. Imagine, imagine you've placed all the aliens ever created in a line with the most exotic at one end and the most human-like on the other. If you're charting Star Trek aliens, you might put the Dicaronium cloud creature on one end. It's a sentient gas cloud that can travel faster than light, sucks iron from blood, and exists in a state between matter and energy. You might put the Betazoids at the other end, as they're essentially telepathic humans with dark eyes. Now we're interested in the more humanoid end of the spectrum for this article. Fortunately, the majority of our pop culture aliens can be found here, so there's no lack of choice. Star Wars' beloved meme fodder Admiral Akbar is a great example. A squidfish man who is not only humanoid but is an admiral, which implies that he's able to communicate and share ideas and tactics with humans, manage people and lead effectively. In short, Akbar is an aspirational human character who just happens to be an alien. Now, there are several good reasons why human-like aliens appear on screen so commonly. Filmmakers' imaginations tend to be constrained by the practicalities of budget and actor comfort, as much as by storytelling. Part of the magic of cinema is how much we, as the audience, buy into the fact that Spock isn't Leonard Nimoy in rubber ears and eyeshadow. But even in printed works, it's easier to find humanoid aliens than not, So it's clear that human-like aliens aren't simply a a practical convenience. They serve other purposes. In fiction, human-like aliens are often used to allegorically represent topics that exist in the real world. Fiction allows us to abstract big, sensitive or urgent issues into something more digestible, be they social, economic or environmental. Stories can help to get some perspective, explore possibilities, and encourage people to consider consequences and prompt discussion. Often, human-like aliens are used as a vehicle to explore the human condition more directly. Having an alien point out or misunderstand idiosyncrasies in human society is a staple of sci-fi and can be played for laughs just as easily as for dramatic effect. Video games occupy a space where, in theory... Practical limitations such as prosthetics, costumes and actor comfort are as irrelevant as being limited only to text descriptions, page counts or a certain runtime to tell your story. They are uniquely interactive stories that take whatever form is necessary. So why? Why do aliens in video games always need to be so human? Early video games, limited in graphics and processing power, mostly relied on using artwork to convey what clusters of monocolour blocks were meant to be. Often these were heavily influenced by other media, even more so than today. 
For example, Space Invaders, released in 1978, was promoted with posters and cabinet artwork showing humanoid figures alongside ranks of flying saucer spaceships. Clearly, the promotional artist at least thought the eponymous invaders looked something like us, even if the game graphics at the time showed something more like an emoji, as imagined by David Cronenberg. Halo Combat Evolved, released in 2001, is often considered to be a milestone in the games industry, and even now, almost 20 years on, it's still a benchmark. The developers could have made the alien enemies, the Covenant, look like anything they wanted. A giant insectoid hive mind like Heinlein's arachnids, sentient plants like Wyndham's triffids, or, or even alien von Neumann machines like the replicators from Stargate SG-1. The developers didn't. Instead, they made aliens that look, to varying degrees, like human-lizard hybrids. Several even have comic book proportions, broad shoulders, narrow waist, and prominent muscles. Now, we can't know what internal decisions led to a final design, but we can consider what making the Covenant humanoid does for the game, and ask what might have been different if the aliens looked less like ourselves. One of the gameplay elements that made Halo a success is the artificial intelligence that the game's enemies possess. The Covenant have several tactics to counter the player. Certain enemies shield or reinforce others, some might flee under fire and others try to flank or ambush them. Aside from that, the gameplay is a well-polished iteration of the first-person shooter archetype dating back to Wolfenstein 3D, released in 1992. Swapping the character designs for really exotic aliens, ambulant octopuses perhaps, might not have altered these basic gameplay mechanics, but there might have been other consequences. See, humans are very good at knowing what humans can do. In Halo, the player begins encountering enemies within just a few minutes of starting the game. As the player encounters each new alien, size is a big part of an initial evaluation. Typically, the smaller ones are easier to fight, and the bigger ones harder. Within that, the more lithe-looking enemies are faster or trickier, and the chunkier ones are slower but hit harder. Players readily expect a certain size and shape of humanoid to move in a a certain way, largely based on what our human brains deem appropriate. Part of the reason why many people consider Halo a great game is the extent to which the alien antagonists both play into and subvert those unconscious expectations. If the Covenant were replaced with Heinlein's pseudo-arachnids, for example, the player would need to consciously learn what to expect from each enemy encountered. Size and shape may not mean much to gigantic hive-minded insects with guns. Small ones might be incredibly powerful and large ones weaker. And where do you shoot an arachnid? Maybe arachnids have a distributed brain and don't have weak points. Is that an arm or a leg? While figuring out the enemy can be one of the most rewarding forms of gameplay in action titles, it does change the game experience. Dark Souls, released in 2011, and the many games like it, rely heavily on players actively learning what each enemy type they encounter can do by repetition, experimentation, and frequent deaths. Halo's gameplay isn't about encountering unknown aliens specifically, it's It's about tactics, positioning, and use of equipment. The aliens presented to the player are tuned to these requirements and, as such, behave in very recognisable ways. 
the veneer placed on top of the gameplay is the story. While Halo gives us a good example of enemy aliens, we, we can also consider why friendly aliens might appear human. A great example is 1997's Oddworld, Abe's Odyssey. Now, Abe, despite being green, is entirely human. His reactions are human. The way he moves is human. His mission is human. His name is human. It's, it's painted in the colours of otherworldliness because... A story about a human slave escaping and freeing other slaves from an alien meat factory might be tough to sell to the intended teen audience, or, more to the point, their parents. Now, in this case, making Abe very human-like serves a, a similar purpose as human aliens in many Star Trek episodes. They're simple surrogates. Now, Abe's Odyssey is essentially a 2D puzzle platformer where Abe jumps, climbs and pulls switches to free his fellow slaves, but if it wasn't about aliens, it would be a very dark game indeed. Typically, video games that feature friendly human aliens do so in much the same way as TV and film. They're usually there to emphasise how exotic a setting is, to act as surrogates or to provide quick caricatures. Now, in these roles, they're actually fulfilling a similar psychological niche to the aliens in Halo, using our neural hardwiring to shortcut a lot of exposition. Now, it's worth taking a look at games like Stellaris, released in 2016, the ECCOM titles and StarCraft, released in 1998, which all feature some quite human-like aliens, as well as some much weirder ones. Like, what does including recognisable aliens alongside the stranger sort do for the gameplay? What does it mean for the narrative? Now, in much the same way that a balance between form and function dictate the final appearance and behaviour of extraterrestrials in film and TV, it seems true of video game aliens too, though in different ways. Whereas in films, an alien might be an actor in a costume and on a budget. In video games, an alien needs to serve the mechanics of the gameplay first. Player, expectations, second. And the sensitivities of the intended audience are a consideration too. For the most part, aliens in fiction are used to tap into our monkey brains and, well, encourage us to experience the story from a certain perspective or, or to get specific points the storytellers wants to make more quickly. There are sometimes expressions of our very human fears, desires, conflicts, contradictions, and taboos. Rarely are aliens in fiction and on screen thoughtful explorations of what real first contact might be like, though there are some examples. By extension, video games, our newest and most interactive media, continue to use human-like aliens too. Not through laziness or lack of creativity, but because they're playing out the stories that we humans still want and need. Games can say important things through the lens of fiction and sci-fi. Sci-fi has always set the bar high for social commentary. If we replaced all the humanoid aliens in video games with the gamut of weird life forms that the universe could plausibly come up with, it might be more realistic but we would probably lose some of the narrative nuance that depicting people with green skin allows. While not every depiction of aliens in video games is an allegory, perhaps more are than we realise. As players and people, it's worth considering what the games we play might be trying to say, because we know from other media 
how powerful the concept of allegory can be. Wargaming on a budget. Wargames are a fantastically popular but surprisingly expensive hobby. However, if you're smart about it, there are ways to get started without breaking the bank. So, you want to be a warlord. You've walked past small, crooked shops on by lanes and back alleys and seen the armies on display. Now you're seized by curiosity. How do they paint those tiny details? What rules decide life and death upon the tabletop? You want to know more, more than anything. There's only one thing stopping you. Money. Unfortunately, wargaming is a perilously expensive hobby, especially with mainstream brands like Games Workshop. Model miniatures, or minis, can cost as much as £30 for a box of 10 figures, which is barely enough to be considered a squad in some systems. This barrier to entry makes it fearsomely difficult for new players to enjoy the hobby if they're on a budget. So what's the best way to remedy this? Enter the skirmish game. For those not in the know, skirmish games are the smaller versions of the mighty war game. They involve small warbands duking it out over single games, or a number of battles linked together to form a campaign. In essence, it's like Dungeons and Dragons without the role-playing, and some extra tactical bits added on. Warbands are usually assembled around a theme. In fantasy skirmish games, which will be the example for this article, these warbands are often drawn from different nations such as dwarves, elves, or the undead. A skirmish game allows you to craft a warband, and to think about who the individuals are who have come together and chosen to fight with one another. Perhaps they are a gathering group of undead, forced to work for a necromancer who is learning their powers, or maybe a band of mercenaries, thrown together during a series of wars. This article will be broken down into steps, covering potential purchases from the ground up. The goal is to spend less than £70 for an entire skirmish force, paints and equipment. Do not underestimate the power of auction sites like eBay to find what you need. Let's see how we do. Step 1. The system. Before we start clipping sprues and thinning paints, we have to choose a skirmish system to play in. We want something that costs as little as possible, is easy to grok, and captures the themes and mechanics of the more popular systems and companies. Lucky for us, one such system already exists. Age of Fantasy Skirmish is a part of the beautifully made one-page rules family, which take IP-friendly versions of the grimdark future and fantasy realms and boil them down into neat one-page rule sets that are entirely free. You and your opponent just need to download the core rules as well as the army sheets for each of your warbands. It's as simple as that. If you're looking for a different setting, the Chain Reaction version 3.1 rules are available online for free. There's also 5150, which you do have to buy, and No Limits, which is free. Money spent so far? Zero. Step 2. The Models Now we get to the tricky part. How do you obtain enough models for a decent warband without breaking the bank completely? Well, the best option would be some kind of deal where you get 20 or so models with a variety of equipment, poses and styles, for less than £1 per model. If you're a bargain hunter, one way of doing this is to start browsing popular auction sites. Car boot sales are another great source of second-hand minis, as are bring-and-buy sections at conventions like UK Games Expo, which we covered in issue 1, Warfare in Reading, or Dragon Meat in London, both of which are this month. These days, the hobby of miniature wargaming is so popular that people are always looking to sell on their armies. 
Several of the team here at Parallel Worlds have developed their hobby collections by rescuing old models, often someone's neglected Christmas or birthday presents. Another way of approaching this is to look at buying a board game to start off. Games like Zombicide Black Plague have excellent character miniatures who might be the starting point for your new project. After all, the characters in these games have to have a backstory or maybe a few friends they hang out with in between adventures, right? Developing a warband around a board game might even lead you to start thinking up new rules for the game itself, so you can include all your new models. However, if you're going for a new boxed set range, the Frostgrave miniature kits from Wargames Factory are an excellent choice. While Frostgrave is itself a fantastic skirmish game, it lends itself to one specific setting. That and the rulebook costs money, which could be better spent elsewhere by first-time players. For instance, if you wanted to build a human warband for Age of Fantasy Skirmish, there are kits such as soldiers and barbarians to choose from. The female soldiers are particularly good, with the emphasis on realism. There are also cultists, gnolls, undead, and more. Whilst the detail quality is not the highest, each kit contains a wealth of options such as alternate heads, weapon and shield arms, and even decorative bits like pouches and bandoliers. You can interchange these kits quite easily too. The 20 models in an £18 box will be enough to build a character to lead the warband, along with their loyal retinue of fellow warriors. It's also worth taking a look at the rest of Wargames Factory's ranges. Most are produced for quite specific historical periods, like Pike and Shot, but they have the advantage of being compatible in terms of size and shape. If you were going for a particular era or setting for your warband, say Napoleonic fantasy, this could be the place to start. For a science fiction game, Wargames Factory used to produce a Shock Troops boxed set for the game Alien Sons. This gave you 20 soldiers in trench coats with gun options and all sorts of accessories too. These occasionally appear on eBay and other auction sites. However, for the purposes of our project, we're going to start with Frostgrave. Money spent so far? £18. Step 3. Tools. Making miniatures from a collection of sprue parts requires a few bits and pieces. To start with, you'll need to get the parts off the sprue, which means craft snips or a sharp knife. You can do this with scissors, but you'll find that you blunt them quickly. You can also try to do this with a little bit of brute force, but you'll probably break some of the smaller pieces. Trust me, we've all done it. So, we need a good craft knife. You can pick one up with interchangeable blades for about £5. Be careful with it and keep your blunted blades, as they can be really useful for modelling later on. To be safe, we'll add a set of snips too. A pair of good ones cost about £4. Make sure you get the right sort though, as different crafts use different types. To put the models together, you're going to need some glue. Superglue works best with this kind of model plastic, and any brand will do. Let's allocate £5 for that. You may also want to pick up some nidotite, or green stuff. This is a special type of moulding putty that you can use to fill in gaps on a model. It comes in strips of yellow and blue, which you mix together in tiny amounts. It also comes in liquid form, which you just paint on. Once it hardens overnight, it's as strong as the plastic and will be invisible once you paint it. It's about £3 for a pack. Total spent on tools, £17. Money spent so far, £35. Step 4. The paint. Painting is a major part of the wargaming hobby, and can appear quite intimidating to newcomers. 
although others take to it right from the start and become more enthused by that part of things than actually playing the games. There are many, many online tutorials that aren't within the scope of this guide, but rest assured, painting your miniatures to a good standard is much easier than you'd think. Starting out, we don't need any Golden Demon Award-winning levels of work, just something to give your little dudes some character and easily identify them on the battlefield. Most painters of miniatures use acrylic-based paints because they are easy to work with. A little bit of water cleans the brush, and then you're ready for the next colour. The style of painting can vary. Warhammer miniatures lend themselves to a sort of cartoonish treatment, but this has gradually become less obvious over the years. There are a variety of ranges of acrylics you can try. The cheapest option is to go to an art shop or online art store and buy tubes of the stuff. Decanting these into some sealable tubs and mixing in a little water will give you the same consistency of paint as Army Painter, Velejo, Revel, or any of the other ranges available. Now, you obviously can't finger paint your models to achieve the look you want, so we'll need to get a couple of brushes. In terms of size, a triple zero brush is good for detail, and a cheap one should last long enough to work with 20 or so models. A size 1 brush is good for bigger sections and undercoating. A value pack of fine detail brushes is going to cost around £5, but you can certainly pay more for better quality here. Washing your brushes is important. Once the hairs on the ends start to separate, you'll be making life difficult for yourself. Money spent so far? £40. However, this method of painting does require some patience. You'll be undercoating, then base colouring, then applying some washes, then dry brushing to get a good look. There is a different approach. Games Workshop's new contrast line of paints. They're essentially thicker washes and glazes mixed together, providing a superb level of highlighting and shading with a single application. For this example, we're going to outfit our human warband with some simple medieval schemes to give them a grounded, gritty look. This also has the advantage of making any first-time errors less visible. Now, this method admittedly isn't the cheapest possible, but it does have the advantage of being quick and getting our miniatures to the tabletop in time for the weekend. Given that we're starting out with a base coat spray, we can get a production line going very quickly, and after a few hours, we should have a good-looking warband. The paints we'll use are Rathbone Spray for the base coat, Lead Belcher for any weapons and metallic bits, Gulliman Flesh for the skin tones, Skeleton Horde for the off-white cloth, Blood Angels Red for the main cloth pieces. Total spent on paints, £24. The cheaper alternative means spending a little bit more time on paints. You'll want generic acrylic black, Elf Flesh Vallejo game colour, Chainmail Vallejo game colour, and another couple of colours, perhaps brown for pouches and belts, and then something brighter for clothes. These are about £3 each. We'll get a small discount on buying a few colours from the website Battleforge, so the total comes to about £14. With the saving you might want to go for more colours, but that's up to you. You can get the same kind of detail effects as the Games Workshop washes and shades, by diluting your paints right down. As you can see, paints and tools can be a big price component here, but the cost is mitigated by how much use you'll get out of them. Whichever method you choose, there should be enough paint left over to manage a second warband or a few reinforcements. Of course, if you have a friend who's already into wargaming, it might be a good idea to borrow some of their stuff until you're absolutely sure that you're hooked. This guide assumes you'll be able to source dice from board games and such that you already own, because, to be frank, 
there's such a dizzying number of dice manufacturers that it would be impossible to weigh them all up in one article. Total money spent, 64 or £54, pounds, depending on which paint option you went with. So you want to know more? Excellent. From skirmish gaming, branching into wargaming proper is very simple. There are lots of mid-level wargames with larger armies you might want to try. For example, Dragon Rampant is an excellent wargame for mid-sized armies and damned affordable to boot. Alternatively, you might start to use your miniatures for a favourite board game or two, like Gloomhaven, whose creator, Isaac Childrez, we interviewed in issue 1. The monsters in Gloomhaven are on cardboard stands, so using your warband for cultists, bandits, city guards or mercenaries can really add something to the game. You can even use your warband characters for a new role-playing session, as player characters and non-player characters for an adventure. The hobby of collecting, modelling, painting and playing with wargaming miniatures has never been more popular or more approachable than it is now. Review. Space Base. If there's a board game which is credited with jump-starting the modern board game phenomenon, it's The Settlers of Catan, now simply called Catan. This award-winning building game combined elements which were familiar to traditional board games, collecting cards and rolling dice, and combined it with a more free-form approach to making progress and choosing a winning strategy. Players roll two dice and collect resources based on the sum. It's a solid game and a modern classic. There's just one problem. It's far too easy to get to your turn and be unable to do anything. Fast forward a bunch of years, and we have Space Base. It has a familiar play cycle of roll dice, collect resources, buy upgrades, but where it scores highly is that turns are fast, and it's very nearly impossible to have your turn without being able to make some kind of progress. Each player has a board with slots marked 1 to 12. The board is your base, and in each numbered slot is a spaceship, which generates a certain type of income, which to begin with is gold or influence, a kind of minimum income per round. When you roll two six-sided dice, you can either collect the reward from the value of both, or activate both slots for each individual die. At the end of your turn, you may buy a new spaceship which replaces one of the ones in your base, gradually upgrading your income and points generating powers. This is where the design gets clever. Every ship in your base is designed to be retired. Retired ships are flipped and placed under the board behind their number. Now, when that chip's number is rolled by another player, you also gain the resources from that card. It's a genius twist on Catan's formula, which offers rewards for farming certain statistically likely numbers with the hope of a windfall as the dice travel around the other players, as well as almost guaranteed benefits on your own turns. Even if it gets to your turn to buy and you have only two gold, having rolled snake eyes on your turn, there are still a large number of cards you can buy, and at the very least this action pushes yet another card into the zone, which generates income on other players' turns. In short, it's a game that never feels truly frustrating, because the direction of progress is always forward, and victory is decided by who can accelerate their progress most efficiently. The worst analogy I've ever used to describe this game is it's like bingo, but cool. And I stand by it. 
You can spend turn after turn carefully building up a cluster of upgrades around one number which hardly ever pops, but then someone rolls a 10. And you get 20 gold points, 2 influence and 5 victory points from a single activation. Having those amazing combos come off is a bingo-like thrill, but with the satisfaction of having manipulated the numbers on your card throughout the game and made your own luck. But what about the space theme, I hear you cry. It's a good question, and I'm sad to report that the theme is essentially paper-thin. Space Base could be about almost any other concept, and the design would remain unchanged. It could be 12 plant pots side by side, or 12 shop units on a high street. However, it does feature some beautiful isometric pixel art of a variety of imaginatively designed spaceships, many of which feature names very close to being a sci-fi reference, if you squint. This is not the amazing space fleet simulator you might be hoping for from the name and the cover art, but it is a very addictive game. Space Base is a game for combo builders, people who like to consider the value and statistical likelihood of a card being triggered, and then carefully add it to a tableau of existing combos, hoping that those numbers will trigger an unstoppable sprint to the finish line. It's highly satisfying, with very little waiting between turns, and each game takes less than an hour, even at the full player count of five. Plus, there's enough variety in the card upgrades and possible combinations that it'll be a long time before you feel you've played the same game before. In short, don't expect a great space adventure because it's not in this package. Do expect a beautifully produced, elegant and fast game of smooth progress, varied tools and satisfying engine building. Mini of the Month. Gerillion. Isharan Soul Render. The last of the Celestial Warriors fell, his empty armour collapsing to the mud-churned ground. Gerillion watched as the warrior's body and spirit returned to the heavens in a bolt of blinding light, its after-image lingering behind his eyelids as he slumped against his talon hook. He wouldn't be able to rest long. With the battle over, his work was only just beginning. Sebel brushed against his leg, swimming around his knees, her serrated bill still bloody. Gerillion absently stroked the Rekadart's abrasive scales while he focused on the pulsing currents of the ether sea around him. The tides were calming after their earlier tempest, and with their foes gone, he could now sense the subtle drift of souls trickling from the fallen. With a gesture, Gerillion intensified the glow of the lantern hanging from his helmet, drawing the lost souls to the lure light. Manipulation of the soul was a technique his people had perfected out of necessity rather than desire, a technique he had a certain talent with, Straightening up, he strode to the surviving Namati cast warriors. Sebel flitted away to explore some foliage. The pale, eyeless elves bowed their heads in acknowledgement as they collected the bodies of their comrades and separated the wounded from the dead. Gerillion forced himself not to look at the faces of the slain and dying Namati. It would only make his task harder. Instead, he calculated, weighing the six grievously wounded Namati against the souls stored in his lurelight. He bowed his head. It wouldn't be enough. Frowning, he shot a glance across the battlefield to Persinov. The leader of the raiding party was speaking with her Achaelian cast guards, their vicious eel steeds snapping and circling relentlessly nearby. Based on her easy smile, she was probably congratulating them on a resounding success. Gerillion turned away, 
He couldn't argue with her reasoning, not logically. The souls they would gather now that they could freely raid the fishing hamlet would recompense their losses, and then some. And those Namati who had already passed beyond the veil could grant some of their brethren one final service at least. But it shouldn't have been this way. Personov hadn't anticipated the presence of the Celestials, beings who could be defeated but never truly killed. Their souls were sacrosanct, impossible for the likes of Gorillion to tear from their bodies. Even in defeat, the divine warriors could claim that victory. He knelt beside the first of the wounded Namati, laying down his talon hook and placing a hand upon the eyeless elf's rune-marked forehead. Focusing his mind, he channeled the soul essence from his lurelight into the shuddering Namati. He let it flow through him, suffusing the pale elf's body, re-knitting wounds and rejuvenating spirit alike. When the heavy iron collar around the Namati's neck hummed with power, Garillion cut the link. The Namati sat up. Turning his eyeless face to Garillion, he nodded his thanks. Garillion took him by the shoulder and helped him to his feet before moving to the next of the injured. Their people were cursed, nearly all of their children born with shriveled souls. Only through bolstering them with the souls of other sapient creatures could they hope to survive beyond infancy. These were the Namati. Those few lucky enough to be born with healthy souls became leaders, wizards, or priests. Garillion and Persinoth were both of this Isharan caste, tasked with securing the future of their people by any means. Garillion stood, his lure light dim and empty. Three wounded Namati still lay before him, but he could not save them. By the time they had harvested enough souls from the inhabitants of the hamlet, it would be too late. He cast a hand across them, a simple enchantment to lull them into a peaceful sleep. It was all he could do. The other Namati huddled together as Garillion retrieved his talon hook, and Sebel returned to his side. Some of them whispered thanks to him, while others stood in silence or embraced each other. There were no tears, for their lack of eyes made weeping impossible. But Garillion could feel the sorrow in their withered souls. As he walked away, he wept for them. I have always loved real-world sea creatures, as well as the tragic tales of elves in many fantasy settings. So, when Games Workshop revealed their range of Ardeneth Deepkin, elves coexisting in the ocean with fantastical fish and sea monsters, I had to pick up some of their models. The Asharan Soul Render particularly stood out to me due to his unique suit of armour, reminiscent of anglerfish and sea urchins, and his pet fish who can assist him in battle. I used a variety of shades, washes and metallic paints to give the armour an almost iridescent effect and the tassels were given their vibrant coral colour with a red wash over a white base coat. To see this month's Mini of the Month, see the web edition on www.parallelworlds.uk. Frightfest The UK's foremost horror film festival is celebrating its 20th year. As they prepare for their Halloween event, we take a look at two decades of Frightfest. The first time this writer went to Frightfest, she didn't think of herself as a horror fan. I like vampires, and I wouldn't tell anyone who would sit still for it about the time I'd seen the woman in black on stage and then couldn't sleep until the sun came up, but I didn't know much about the genre as a whole. However, Frightfest was hosting the first UK screening of Timur Bekmambetov's Daywatch, and I was desperate to see it, having fallen in love with its predecessor, Nightwatch. 
The film was preceded by a surprise short, In the Walls, a funny but genuinely unsettling story about a killer fetus, and a brief Q&A with its director. The atmosphere in the room was relaxed and eager. The audience both wanted to be pleased and were pretty sure they would be. At the end of Daywatch's biggest action set-piece, a gravity-defying motorcycle chase, the crowd spontaneously applauded, something I'd never experienced in a cinema before. More than ten years later, I do call myself a horror fan, but I'm not sure I'd call Daywatch a horror movie. It's more of a hybrid, existing on the borders of action and thriller, fantasy and horror. As such, though, Daywatch fits in perfectly with what I now think of as a quintessential Fright Fest experience. My first time out, I got all the hallmarks of the festival, a UK premiere, some surprise bonus content, interaction with creators, and a film which, while crowd-pleasing, illustrates how broad and permeable the boundaries of the horror genre are. Frightfest is the UK's biggest horror film festival. It first ran for four days over the August bank holiday weekend of the year 2000, hosted by the Prince Charles Cinema. The festival was organised by the team who continue to run it today, film producer Paul McAvoy, distributor Ian Rathray, and journalist Alan Jones. Publicist Greg Day joined as a co-director in 2006. Jones had previously run the Scala Cinema's Shock Around the Clock Festival in the 80s, and later programmed the horror season for the British Film Institute called Phantasm, an event he afterwards considered mismatched the rarefied atmosphere of the National Film Theatre. Frightfest was to be more ambitious undertaking than either of these. The intention was to create a horror fantasy festival which could compete with the likes of Sitges or the comprehensively named Brussels International Fantasy Fantastic Thriller and Science Fiction Film Festival. It quickly became clear that there was a UK market to meet this ambition. To accommodate increasing demand for tickets, the festival moved to the Odeon Leicester Square in 2005, and then to the UK's largest cinema screen at the Empire Cinema in 2009. Following some last-minute additional screenings in preceding years, the festival's running time officially increased from four days to five in 2007. Today, Frightfest takes place across six screens in Cineworld Leicester Square, and its original home, the Prince Charles Cinema, with one main screen lineup and three competing Discovery screens. It features more than 70 films, in addition to interviews, previews and short film showcases. The Frightfest umbrella now also includes Frightfest Glasgow, a three-day event in March, the single-day Frightfest Halloween and Frightfest Presents, a distribution label. The only thing all Frightfest films have in common is they've been watched and presumably liked by one of the festival's directors. English language films predominate, but a typical five-day lineup will include one or two films in other languages, even if you've never venture beyond the main screen. Most of the films will be new, but a couple will be genre classics of either their beloved or the forgotten variety. A few major upcoming releases are featured, but they're outnumbered by smaller, more independent films, looking forward to much more limited distribution. For some, their screenings at Frightfest will be the only time they see the inside of a UK cinema. 
Most interestingly, the festival organisers interpret their fantasy horror remit very broadly. They certainly don't shy away from slashes, monsters, ultraviolence, or the latest instalments of horror franchises like Chucky or Puppet Master. On the other hand, they're equally happy to feature movies that break away from the horror mould. This year's festival closed with a crime drama, A Good Woman is Hard to Find. A wonderfully tense, oppressive film, but one that could only possibly be called horror because of the extremes of violence the protagonist is forced to in the third act. Previous offerings have included They Call Me Jeek, an Italian deconstruction of superhero tropes, Anna and the Apocalypse, the self-styled zombie Christmas musical, and Steve Oram's frankly unclassifiable Ah! A story about a modern society with the moors of cavemen. The Discovery screen lineups have also featured a number of documentaries about horror films, filmmakers and fans, including the charming Best Worst movie about the cast and fans of Troll 2, and last year's very funny King Cohen, the wild world of filmmaker Larry Cohen. Now there are three levels of Frightfest tickets, single films, day passes and weekend passes covering the whole five days of the festival. Pass holders are automatically entitled to see every film on the main screen. They can also enter a lottery to see films they're interested in on the Discovery screens. The festival isn't cheap, but it's not outrageously expensive. The £15 price for single tickets is roughly on a par with the £10-20 in individual tickets at the London Film Festival costs. Whether the festival is worth it to you depends very much on your tastes. Though despite my own positive early experience, I wouldn't recommend Frightfest to non-horror fans, or even to people who feel unsure about the genre. There are plenty of individual films that might appeal to fans of crime, thrillers, genre pastiche, or fantasy, but the festival as a whole assumes that you like horror, and you're likely to see some fairly graphic violence and splatter in trailers, advertising, and even in the festival idents. In addition, there's never a guarantee that the film on the schedule is the only thing you're going to see. Any showing might also include a surprise short film, television pilot, or sneak preview of an upcoming movie. Now, these can be wonderful bonus for fans, but for people planning to see something just within the levels of their tolerance, they, it could be an unwelcome addition. If you don't like gore, it's also worth noting that Frightfest screenings tend to be uncut versions of the film in question. I mean, even if you know a film is going to be released in the UK as a 15, the version you watch at Frightfest could well have 18-rated content. As mentioned above, Frightfest's programming is broad and eclectic. A typical day's lineup might include something genuinely scary, something that leans more towards comedy, something that clings tightly to genre tropes, and something that you barely register as horror at all. It would be pretty unusual to see two films from the same subgenre on the same day unless you actively went looking for them. If you are generally picky about your horror, Frightfest may not be the festival for you. For me, though, Frightfest's eclecticism is its greatest strength. It's a unique and joyous experience to settle down for a full day of movies, having almost no idea what you're going to get, and be swept along for the ride.
The festival's focus on smaller productions also means that Frightfest gives you the chance to see films you mightn't otherwise see in a cinema, or possibly at all. Some of my favourite films of the last decade have been my film of the festival at Frightfest, and later went straight to streaming services where I would never have known I ought to look for them. The festival's other big draw is its friendly atmosphere. Clap for the films you enjoy, chat to their creators and the festival organisers, and introduce yourself to your fellow attendees. They'll generally be very happy to talk to you. Frightfest is not for everyone. It's not even for every horror fan, but bring an open mind and a strong stomach and you just might have the time of your life. Homeworld. Past and future. In PC games, what we identify as a classic can be ephemeral. There are many elements that go into the design and production of a game, and many subjective factors that can influence our view of the experience playing it. We don't just watch games, we participate in them, and that participation should allow us to shape what happens. The best games make us feel like we have affected their outcome, and connect with the circumstances and the role we've taken on in the game's fictional premise. Homeworld, produced by Relic Entertainment, first appeared in 1999. At that point, the real-time strategy genre, with its resource management, manufacturing and large-scale battles, had been around since 1992, with the first release of Dune. Warcraft, Orc vs. Humans, Dune 2, and then Command and Conquer in 1995 refined the formula. Age of Empires, released in 1997, took the same base-building mechanics into a quasi-historical fantasy setting, and Total Annihilation, also in 1997, introduced self-replicating robots and a science fiction setting. It was only logical that another games company would make a similar leap and set a game in space itself. At first glance, the change of setting is the most notable alteration, and magazine reviews at the time focused on the space opera visuals and fleet management qualities of the experience. In this first incarnation, the Mothership, the iconic image of the franchise box art, was one of two options for the player, but in both versions it acted as a mobile production centre, which was a change from the traditional fixed camp requirements of the real-time strategy genre. Another innovation was the three-dimensional area of deployment, a marked departure from the two-dimensional terrestrial theatres of war players were used to. Judging by the reviews, it seemed clear with hindsight that certain scenario snippets had been all that eager reviewers had been able to experience. However, they didn't tell the whole story of the game that was to come. What made Homeworld memorable was the emphasis on story and cinematic visuals. Relic co-founder Alex Garden had been looking to emulate the cinematic space opera qualities of Star Wars, centred around a Battlestar Galactica-like story premise, the tragic beginning, with the mothership fleeing a destroyed world, carrying its last cryogenically frozen survivors in its cargo hold, was set up with a series of cutscenes and tutorial scenarios that blended seamlessly into the beginning of the story. The choice of Samuel Barber's bittersweet adagio for strings as the soundtrack for these moments, along with the initial activation of the mothership beforehand, perfectly set up a complex series of epic narrative escalations. The Kushan people had launched their first hyperspace-capable colonial ship and successfully tested its new engines. Yet, at that very moment of triumph, their planet had been destroyed. 
The player is intrinsically involved in this tragedy. The mothership is called away whilst the attack happens, and returns just in time to save the colonists' survivors. The series of missions are carefully structured to increase in difficulty, putting the player in a dangerous, unstable position, and cutting away the initial equilibrium of the game's premise. This helps on two fronts. In terms of the narrative, it plays close to the Battlestar Galactica theme, the journey of a ragtag fleet. In terms of game reward, it lowers expectations. Survival becomes the achievement, rather than victory and spoils. One aspect of play in the first Homeworld game that was initially underestimated was the use of salvage corvettes to capture enemy ships. The game contains an array of different neutral and enemy craft, as well as the developing Kushan fleet, unlocked with research and development. The salvage options helped the player gain new ships before some of that research became available, and, with the variety of designs, gave their fleet more of a motley appearance. Gradually, the Kushan exiles follow the path laid out for them and discover their original homeworld, Higara, lost for generations after a galactic war. The scenarios escalate into a riotous space battle, full of resource management and glorious visuals. Homeworld drew an eager audience of gamers from a variety of different places. The 4X genre, meaning explore, expand, exploit, and exterminate, tended to be turn-based, unlike Homeworld, but there were a lot of science fiction games which had similar visual aesthetics. Real-time strategy players found a home with most of the familiar gameplay mechanics, and, as more casual gamers discovered it and saw its beautiful graphics, they took it to their hearts as well. This writer bought his first proper PC as a university student in 1996. I missed out on Dune, but caught up with Command and & Conquer and Age of Empires. When Homeworld came along, I was in my graduate year and played it ceaselessly. The slower resource acquisition elements were a familiar experience, and I loved zooming in and out on my spaceships. At the time, the visuals were some of the best you could find, and resonated with the science fiction novels I was reading at the time. I'd go to bed imagining the lives of the people on board the mothership, desperately fighting to survive in a hostile galaxy. Any child of the 80s who read Eagle comics and knows the work of Ian Kennedy can see something of his work in the artistic design of Homeworld. The elegant lines mixed with utilitarian details are something both visions share, and something Hello Games must have drawn a little inspiration from when they began developing No Man's Sky, which was released in 2016. The popularity of the franchise saw a clamour for sequels. Homeworld Cataclysm came out in 2000, a spin-off sequel focusing on the adventures of Kith Somtor, one of the clans that had survived the journey to Higara. The spaceship roster didn't include the iconic mothership, but it did introduce some new gameplay features, such as a game speed toggle and an innovative enemy in the shape of the Beast, who infected ships and became a fascinating player choice in the multiplayer game. Homeworld 2 followed in 2003, with a return to the main story. Higara is attacked by a new threat, forcing a temporary evacuation and the reactivation of the mothership. The gameplay of the sequel is probably the best and most complete, but the story doesn't have the same resonance as the original. In any story, it is difficult to play the same trick twice, and whilst the single-player campaign has its strengths, Homeworld 2 was certainly a game I played more as a multiplayer treat with my relatives and friends than for its story. In 2004, Relic Entertainment was bought by THQ. The new owner immediately turned their attention to Dawn of War, 
a licensed series of real-time strategy games that made use of Games Workshop's Warhammer 40,000 fictional universe. The Homeworld franchise remained largely neglected, with some confusion over who, between Sierra Entertainment and Relic, owned the rights to the brand. In April 2013, THQ filed for bankruptcy and the Homeworld rights were sold to Gearbox Software. Immediately, in partnership with a company of former Homeworld designers called Blackbird Interactive, Gearbox announced their intention to publish a package of the two titles, Homeworld and Homeworld 2, with upgraded graphics, sound, and a complete engine overhaul. It was released as the Homeworld Remastered Collection. In many ways, this update was a triumph for the underlying gameplay design of the original games. Both stood up well against modern real-time strategy games, but they lacked the ability to take advantage of modern graphics cards, so the visual aesthetic of the past had become a nostalgic disappointment to faithful fans of the franchise. A remastered game was the ultimate tribute to the players who had kept the faith, hoping that the series would not be consigned into oblivion. Homeworld Remastered Collection was released in 2015, closely followed by a prequel. 2016's Homeworld Deserts of Karak returned the franchise to its inspirational roots, set as a modern, ground-based, real-time strategy more reminiscent of Dune. Deserts of Karak was perhaps the most exciting expansion of the Homeworld mythos since the original game. The decision to focus on the society of Karak, in decay owing to climate change, allowed for a focus on the conflict between the Keith, or clans, of the Kushian civilization. The mysterious backstory of the first game was greatly enriched by the plot of the new game, setting up a variety of possible continuing narratives. In fact, back in 2016, this writer was in direct negotiations with Gearbox Software to write a novel set in Karak society. The premise was to follow up from the end of Deserts of Karak and move the story forward towards the starting point of the original Homeworld game, with the mysterious attack that wiped out the planet. Could there have been a betrayal of the Kushians by some of their own people? I still have hopes to work on this franchise one day, as the lore is so rich and interesting. In August 2019, Gearbox Software and Blackbird Interactive announced that they had started work on Homeworld 3, planned for release in 2022. As part of this development, they have launched an unusual crowdfunding campaign on the website FIG. Apparently, the game is already fully funded. The crowdfunding campaign is in fact an opportunity for fans of the franchise to invest in the game. FIG has a system of investment and return, which sees backers choose a monetary profit for their initial stake, which is set to a minimum of $500 in this case, rather than a series of rewards and it is this option that Gearbox and Blackbird appear to be focusing on. There are a series of reward tiers for people who prefer to simply back the game, however. The usual set of social media adverts have also begun to appear, appealing particularly to fans of the franchise. The trailer for Homeworld 3 picks up the story at the end of Homeworld 2. The hyperspace gates have opened, and now is the time to explore. The visuals are reminiscent of past games, with enough of a rework to get the best out of modern computers. The music score invokes much of the recent deserts of Karak, with a slight twist towards a Blade Runner aesthetic. With a 20-year legacy, the Homeworld franchise has outlasted many of the other fictions it drew inspiration from. Battlestar Galactica came and went in the time Homeworld was locked away in licensing hell. Dune will be returning to the cinemas in 2020. Warcraft evolved into a massively multiplayer online game and Command & Conquer has become a mobile platform game, 
although Electronic Arts has indicated that it will revisit the older games sometime in the near future. Total Annihilation was reborn as Supreme Commander in 2007, with a highly regarded standalone expansion shortly afterwards, but has gone dark since then. The only other iconic game of the real-time strategy period, Age of Empires, has recently followed a similar route to Homeworld, with a definitive remastered edition of the old games, released in 2018. Of course, Star Wars remains out there, and, through a multitude of games and films, continues to feed adults and children their special diet of Spitfires in space. This is where Homeworld stands, a little to the left and behind the vast Disney brand, but always ready and waiting to cater to the imaginations of eager science fiction fans and gamers who want to command a space fleet on a lonely journey, out there into the black. Terraria, the success of simplicity in modern gaming. Ask a gamer what never changes, and there's a few answers you might get. War, FIFA, EA, or perhaps Bethesda's persistence in releasing new versions of Skyrim. I would add another entry, Terraria's price on Steam. Okay, Steam has sales all the time. Aside from those, and one rise in its base price in 2014... Terraria has maintained a steady price of £7 with impressive consistency. Sure, it's not a high price, but for a title to maintain a price tag higher than at its release for so many years is a little anomalous. Even more unusually, Terraria was born right in the era of, for lack of a better term, disposable gaming with new AAA titles being pumped out yearly by the massive studios. A 2D side-scroller from an indie developer could easily have been overlooked, yet many years and many iterations of Call of Duty later, Terraria had clocked over 27 million sales. All very impressive. Mm -hmm. But how? Well, the past decade of gaming has demonstrated great technological leaps to the point where screenshots can be indistinguishable from photographs. Yet a pixelated side-scroller where you battle floating eyeballs still grips a large audience. So far, there have been four major stages of Terraria's development, from the initial release 1.0 to the current 1.3. Each large patch has added a lot of content. With new bosses, events, weaponry, armour, accessories and mechanics, the game has well over doubled in size. Each update brought more to what fans believe was already a near-perfect game. One point brought hard mode, an entirely new section of the game tacked into the end, albeit a little haphazardly. 1.2 added over 1,000 new items, as well as a multitude of bosses and events, as well as user interface and quality of life improvements. Most recently, 1.3 introduced a final boss and entire new difficulty, Expert Mode. For many players who had mastered defeating any boss on the first night, Expert Mode introduced a sharp difficulty increase, proving popular in today's Dark Souls-hardened masochistic gaming community. Terraria's story is not over yet, either. The upcoming update 1.4, known as Journey's End, is to be the final entry in the game's journal. Well, at least until Terraria 2. Judging by the spoilers and teasers revealed so far, Journey's End will add new boss content, graphical changes, and an even more gruelling level of difficulty. Master Mode! 
Relogic have clearly put a great deal of love and care into the game. While supporting a game for so long isn't unheard of, it's a great deal more unusual for one that isn't massively multiplayer. Now, this doesn't explain the game's success, though. If it wasn't so popular, the updates wouldn't have come. And trying to unravel the mystery, this writer went back to play it again. I'd wanted to wait for 1.4 to drop, but with such a foggy development timeline and my deadline for this article rapidly approaching, I caved in early. It had been a year since I last played, yet I instantly felt gripped. I dived straight into expert mode, and after a few nights of helpless slaughter, I'm not going to disclose who was slaughtering whom, I found myself entering hard mode. After some more nights of slaughter, some dead mechanical bosses, and some colourful language directed at a giant carnivorous plant, I had completely forgotten what I was meant to be doing. Though it may sound a little clichéd, in the moment I remembered why I was playing, it clicked for the umpteenth time Terraria had roped me in. Hours and days melted away as I farmed the winged pig shark thing and constructed my glorious new mage tower. The game's simplicity is the key to its success. A mere seven pounds unlocks a 2D world of adventure, underground, jungles, giant glowing mushrooms and magically levitating skulls, and it's your world. Aside from boss and gear progression, there are no rails you have to follow. The guide will give you hints as to what milestone is next, but your route of progression is up to you. The player is given the choice of magic, guns, bows and arrows, minions, or just a good old sword. Combat is very much the game's central element. Each boss has unique mechanics to stretch and challenge the player. Weapon turnover is constant, with one individual weapon rarely being useful for more than a couple of bosses. It feels rewarding because it makes you work for your achievements, but it doesn't take anything away unfairly either. You can be sure that if you die, it's your fault. Every time. The more you die, the more you learn, and the angrier you get. <laughs> Bosses can take dozens of rage-filled attempts, but you find yourself repeatedly coming back. Sound familiar? The appeal of a challenge never fails to hook a gamer. You almost forget it's a 2D side-scroller when you're trying to avoid dying at the jaws of a giant laser-shooting mechanical worm for the tenth time. All you care about is surviving. And the well-earned kill feels that much more rewarding when your gear was pulled out of the ground with your own bloodied hands. Even approaching a decade since original release, Terraria is still there for me whenever I burn out on whatever other game previously caught my fancy. While I'm a little ashamed to admit, as of writing, I've clocked just shy of 1,400 hours in its two-dimensional world. Ironically, its low price has led me to spend more, in that I've probably bought six or seven copies for friends who have subsequently become addicted too. <laughs> if we widen our scope, it's clear Terraria isn't alone. With games like Dead Cells, Stardew Valley and Starbound, it's evident that a game can still succeed on a handful of pixels. Diamonds in the Rough. Read Adventurous. These days, finding a good book to read can be tricky, not because there aren't enough books around. 
The science fiction, fantasy and horror markets are absolutely saturated. So navigating through the flood to get to something you'll enjoy can be difficult. Some readers stick to the authors and series they know. That way, there's a bit of a guarantee of the kind of story you're going to get. However, it also means a lot of great stuff may be passing you by. This article is written for readers who are looking to be a little bit more adventurous and try something new. If that's you, brilliant. There are hundreds of fantastic writers out there who really need your support. Every writer's path to finding their readers is a different one. And if you're prepared to take a risk on a new book, it can be a good experience for both of you, even if you don't like it. Trying something different stretches us and makes us aware of the good and the bad in every story we've read. Here at Parallel Worlds, we want to find some diamonds. And we know there's a few out there. Hopefully we can encourage you to start looking too, and find more great writers of science fiction, fantasy and horror who really deserve a bigger audience. The e-book took off in 2007, with early adopters quickly claiming a potentially lucrative market share and audience. Opportunistic authors got in ahead of the established publishing houses. That year, the Kindle was the great piece of new technology to own. But a lot of the content available in bookstores wasn't available on the new platform, so readers turned to whatever they could find. Some of it was cheap, some of it was free, and a lot of it wasn't very good. Now, twelve years later, the landscape has changed. The e-book revolution, which seemed like it might signal the end of print, has peaked and levelled off. Sales are broadly even between paperbacks and e-books. The market for dedicated devices has fallen, with most people using phones, tablets and laptops to read whatever they want to read in PDF, EPUB and Mobi formats. In 2019, anyone with some knowledge of Amazon's Kindle Direct website can set up a book to be published. In fact, anyone who learned how to write a website in the 90s can make an ebook. The basic language used is HTML, so there isn't much to learn if you can remember how you used to put your .coms together. Generally, ebooks can't handle complex design which is why they've not managed to establish themselves as a rival to PDFs or other electronic comic book formats. But they work well as a cheaper option, particularly for voracious readers and researchers who need to get a quick copy of something for an essay or a class. In the publishing industry, the bigger publishers have lower costs on physical books than smaller publishers. This is because their print runs are huge, so the cost per copy goes down. But ebooks are an area where smaller independent publishers and self-published authors can compete. The science fiction, horror and fantasy publishing industry in the United Kingdom is thriving. The big imprints, publishing labels owned by larger publishing houses, usually genre-specific, are usually the ones you see in Waterson's, Foils or Blackwell's. But occasionally you'll find a smaller press getting its books on their shelves. Other genres really cannot compare in terms of the sheer number of titles and demand at all levels. Internationally recognised authors are now commonly published by a variety of sources. In the past, that didn't happen. Many smaller publishing houses are basically individual authors who have become frustrated with the high levels of rejection at the top of the industry. Most businesses like Golantz, Harper Voyager, Penguin and their ilk only accept agented submissions, and most agents reject around 90% of what they're sent. So aiming high is all very well, 
but it isn't necessarily a mark of how good a book is, just a measure of what's caught a particular agent's eye. Some independent publishers have gained a reputation for excellent work. Newcon Press, who publish Adrian Tchaikovsky, featured in issue 2, have been nominated for many industry awards over the years, as have imprints like Fox Spirit, Lunar Press, PS Publishing and others. Similarly, Angry Robot, Titan Books and Rebellion are diverse organisations with different products like comics within the same business. Finding novels produced by some of these companies can require you knowing where to look. Most will be at the conventions like Worldcon, Eastercon and Fantasycon. Forbidden Planet in London are owned by Titan Books and stock many rare titles, as do little independent bookshops like Books on the Hill in Clevedon. However, sometimes a book needs to be self-published. The stigma attached to this, and most of the vanity publishing industry that catered for it in the last millennium, has mostly vanished. In fact, internationally renowned authors self-publish occasionally. There are moments where that's simply the best choice for the story and the writer. It does mean that percentages aren't going to other people, but it also means the writer is responsible for all aspects of getting the book to the reader. This means not only writing, but also editing, layout, cover, format, and distribution. So, you're looking for a book to read, and you want to support a new writer, or try something a little different. Okay, here are a few things to look for. Reviews. Read up on the book. See if other people enjoyed it. People are generally polite about books, even on the internet, but there are a few pointers you can always pick up from a review or two. Similarly, if you choose the book and read it, leave a review. You'd be surprised how much it means to an author's profile if you do. Amazon is the go-to place for reviews, but it's also good to look around and see what other websites are saying. Cover design. There are plenty of pretty ebook covers that are a massive disappointment when you get to the text. However, a bit of effort put into the cover can give you a clear idea of what value the author placed on getting it organised. Some of the best books I own have plain and simple covers. Things that look hastily thrown together are what you might want to avoid. Blurbs. It sounds obvious, but a back-page blurb sells the book. Writers are often really bad at writing these, or indeed at pitching their own work, but there can be some alerts that would put you off of a self-published ebook. Given that the writer can change their blurb on Amazon pretty easily, you'd think they should get the spelling and grammar right, wouldn't you? Price Most authors don't know the worth of their work, and many ebooks are inexpensive or free. If an author has written a 100,000-word novel, that will have taken them at least 50 days to write, and then at least the same to edit, proof, format, and so on. Selling a book at a low price or giving it away for free can be a good idea, particularly if you've written a series, but it's still shorting the value of your work. Unfortunately, with so many books available for free, it does make it difficult for a writer not to be tempted to try to give away one or two to see if they translate into more sales, so free doesn't necessarily mean bad. With an independent publisher, things are a bit different. Most have a very good idea of the value of what they've taken on in terms of time invested, contracts, 
current sales, and comparable sales on other novels or collections. Most will prefer you to be buying books from their website. That way, a higher percentage goes to the writer and the publisher, and less to Amazon or another distributor. Lastly, read the preview. Most books on Amazon have a preview option now, so you can get a feel for whether you like the writing style. Here are a few examples of diamonds we find that really deserve a bigger readership. Ada King by E. M. Folds The understated cover might make you overlook this little gem. Ada King is the story of a rebellious counterculture society that springs up in the near future of our world. It blends together virtual reality and reality, as one extremely gifted individual seeks to forge an independent path, finding Raft City for people who've rejected the dominant dystopian societies that seek to oppress and exploit them. This is a fantastically written thrill ride from start to finish that's crammed with big ideas. The Fractured Empire series by Amy Duboff A space opera setting with telepathic agents and a secret interdimensional war. Duboff began her series in 2015. In four years she's produced seven novels, been Nebula Award nominated and find time to write a variety of other science fiction in collaboration with other authors. This is the kind of accessible epic science fiction you can devour. It's a total escape with excellent writing throughout. There's also no sign of Duboff slowing down any time soon. She's developing a collection of collaborations set in her fictional universe. The Lost War by Justin Lee Anderson An epic fantasy published by King Lot Publishing, which is actually Anderson's own imprint. This is a 500-page doorstop of a book. The Lost War has a bit of a clichéd opening, but from then on it finds its feet and is reminiscent of the classic 80s and 90s fantasy quests that some of us remember growing up with. The story is innovative and interesting, the characters have some depth, and the writer is certainly punching above his weight in the market. This book deserves a good audience amongst sword and sorcery fans. Becoming David by Phil Sloman Published by Hersham Horror, Becoming David is a novella-length story, set in contemporary times that serves up a meticulous serial killer outwitted by a little dose of the supernatural. One or two choices prevent this being as scary as it might be, but the sense of disturbed, lingering awfulness continues all the way to the end. You really get a sense of the different characters in this work, each of them playing a part as it works its way towards a bittersweet conclusion. Mr. Sucky by Duncan P. Bradshaw At first glance, this is the kind of book that can't really find a home with a major publisher unless someone's prepared to take a significant leap. Mr. Sucky is available as an e-book or a paperback, but really you should buy the paperback, as it looks like a faded vacuum cleaner instruction manual. Inside, and past the assembly instructions and translated sections, you'll find a sharp comedy horror story told over 19 chapters. The dialogue is fabulous and the clever little touches in terms of visual design throughout are a delight to find. This is the kind of book your friends will be surprised to come across and surprised they remember years later. So there we have it. A few tips and recommendations from us but the journey is far from over. 
If this article encourages you to try a new author or two, please do let us know. Alan at ParallelWorlds.uk Together we can start talking about some great new stories and helping get them to readers who are prepared to be adventurous. Review Rosewater Winner of the Clark Award this year, Tade Thompson's Rosewater is the first in the Wormwood trilogy. It tells the story of an alternate future, with a transformed Nigeria playing host to an alien dome right in the centre of the eponymous new city. Caro is a government agent, working for Section 45. He is a sensitive, a human who has become a telepath after being exposed to alien biology and has access to the xenosphere, an illusionary shared mental space that seems to work like a shifting virtual reality. Caro is our narrator, telling us the story in a patchwork series of current events and flashbacks, all clearly marked with a date and time. Thompson has said that his writing perspective is all about character, and the Clark Award judges agreed, commenting that Rosewater's treatment of characters is incredibly engaging. There are small narrative arcs and developments for many of the book's cast, and even its locations. Rosewater itself is clearly a character, and its gradual development from the arrival of the aliens to the resolution of the story is a larger reflection of the development of the individuals who live there. Caro himself is fascinating. Thompson eschews the traditional attributes of a hero, making his protagonist a little sexist and something of a coward. The dialogue between him and his contemporaries is varied and interesting, making the world believable with its mundane qualities and its tense moments. In the majority, Caro's sexism comes across in banter, which generally sees him go unrewarded for his misogyny. However, the female characters around him see something deeper in the way he acts, as opposed to how he talks. There is a generosity of spirit to him that appeals both directly to the reader and indirectly through the supporting cast. Whilst he is afraid, he confronts his fears, rather than running from them. He makes mistakes too, which for the most part he regrets. At the end of the novel, you cannot help but look back and marvel at the varied and interesting series of events that has brought Caro to be in such a pivotal position in Rosewater's story. However, Thompson's character focus does come with a cost. At times, the plot of Rosewater seems to meander and disappear. Events do not build towards anything. Caro has tasks that he has been given to do, but they are pushed away at times, and some of the chaotic encounters he deals with do not connect to anything else. The continual back and forth of date and time is clearly marked, but can mean the reader loses track of what is happening and in what order. Much of the conclusion relies on Caro calling in a favour from more than a decade ago, which the reader doesn't find out about until the chapter after it is mentioned, which feels less like a Chekhov's gun and more like a deus ex machina. Rosewater is an excellent read. The settings and the characterization mark it out as being an innovative novel. There is clearly much more to the mysteries of Wormwood, Section 45, The Bicycle Girl, and The Alien Biodome, which will be explored in Thompson's subsequent books. Rosewater, written by Tade Thompson, is published by Orbit. Review Beyond Kidding Beyond Kidding is heavily grounded in the abnormal life of the protagonist, Rob, a nearly 30 underachiever working in a sex shop owned by his childhood best friend, Bummer. After a series of setbacks, Rob decides that he needs a better job to springboard his life into adult status. 
Partway through bungling the interview, he bonds with the boss of the company by mentioning that he's a single parent, raising his seven-year-old son Brody. Later, to avoid an awkward situation, Rob claims that Brody has been kidnapped, which then starts a chain of events that leads to Brody being found. The only issue is that Brody never existed. Rob made him up. The majority of the story is told in a series of flashbacks as Rob desperately bears his soul to his friend Jules about everything that led to him concocting a fake child. By this stage, Rob is on the verge of madness because everyone, even his friends and family, remembers Brody too. This in itself makes a good story reminiscent of the best of the Twilight Zone. But layered on top of that, the boy that shouldn't exist sits literally in the next room while Rob narrates the whole thing to Jules, which feels pleasingly claustrophobic. Clark manages to convey just how oblivious Rob is to his own role in his life's twists and turns while keeping the narrative flowing and easy to follow. If I have one criticism here, it's that the story feels like a novella that's been padded into novel form. The climb to Midway feels a little long, given its flashback nature. However, this is a minor point, and once I'd made it to around halfway, Beyond Kidding really got moving, and I find myself at the end rather suddenly. At times, Beyond Kidding is cringeworthy, bare-naked honesty, and other times, verging on surreal, and yet somehow it comes together smoothly. Rob's haphazard logic and leap-before-looking nature feel authentic to the point where the reader might well ponder exactly how much is taken from personal experiences. Clark's style reminds me of Phoebe Waller-Bridge's Fleabag, if she'd decided to co-write it with the ghost of Douglas Adams. Despite enjoying the story, I couldn't help wishing that Rob had some redeeming qualities that would allow me to sympathise with him a little more. Clark doesn't shy away from warts and all descriptions of Rob's entirely juvenile thoughts and actions. Her writing is expressive, which beautifully paints just how terrible Rob is as a friend, colleague, partner, and general human being. Fortunately, Rob's support network seems to have enough moral fibre to go round, which is handy, because he's now a dad to a child that shouldn't exist, and he's going to need help figuring all this out. Beyond Kidding by Linda Clark is published by Fairlight Books. Review Duchamp vs. Einstein What if a transcendent alien intelligence made Marcel Duchamp and Albert Einstein play chess together? This is the premise of the pleasingly named Duchamp vs. Einstein, a new novelette co-written by Christopher Hintz and Etan Ilfeld. The latter is director of the company that owns Angry Robot, the book's publisher. The novelette is split into chapters which follow either titular protagonist through various episodes at different points in their lives, smartly and non-chronologically detailing their interactions with a star-child-like figure known as Stella. The writing is neat, pithy and clean. The characters themselves are written with sufficient nods to their real-world achievements and lives to spark recognition, but this doesn't veer into triteness. The dialogue in particular crackles with wit and intelligence. I have no idea what a conversation with Einstein would have been like, but these approximations are entertaining and plausible nonetheless. The book is at its best as a series of hypothetical conversations between improbable people, 
and contains some of the more memorable dialogue I've read this year. However, it's weird. It doesn't seem to go anywhere. I found myself on the final page with surprise, just as I thought I was beginning to grasp the plot. There is a good sense that something weighty and important is being said here, possibly about the nature of war, fate, and human nature, and so forth. But I never felt I firmly grasped what this was. This is a lesser evil than going too far the other way and shoving your point in the reader's face, and there are worse sensations than the lingering feeling that a book might just be too clever for you. But I would have probably enjoyed it more had I understood clearly what it was trying to say. Then again, reviewers probably said similar about To the Lighthouse. This may partially be my inexperience with the novelette as a format, but I feel there are two potential products here. A short story asking the whimsical question, what would a chess game between Einstein and Duchamp be like, would make for a diverting 20 minutes. Likewise, a novel about an alien intelligence seeking to alter human history through interventions into the lives of people around the Manhattan Project would potentially make for a racy, thoughtful, and gripping read. This is something in between. Duchamp vs. Einstein has a lot of merit. A meat-and-potato science fiction story it isn't. But if you're in the mood for a bit of whimsy, and are willing to suspend your expectations and pay attention, you may well be pleased you picked it up. Duchamp vs. Einstein by Christopher Hintz and Etan Ilfeld is published by Angry Robot. Keeping Trek Part 2 In the second part of our focus on Star Trek, we look back over the 1990s, 2000s and the famous franchise today. The 1980s saw Star Trek successfully transition to the cinema screen. However, the reliance on the same actors and characters would gradually take its toll. And whilst the six movies that focused on original Enterprise crew would continue until 1991, Gene Roddenberry, creator of the brand, had some other ideas up his sleeve. Despite the failure of Phase 2 back in 1976, Roddenberry believed that many of the ideas were still sound. He used the concepts as a launching point for what could become the franchise's next incarnation, Star Trek The Next Generation, which ran from 1987 to 1994. This was a momentous step forward for Star Trek, and a very different show than the original. Led by the more cerebral character of Captain Jean-Luc Picard, played by Patrick Stewart, this new series fleshed out the utopia of the 24th century. The pseudoscience of the show reflected its time, with a grounded set of technology that regularly became an integral part of the plot. Thanks to energy sources such as dilithium crystals and the energy-to-matter converters known as replicators, vessels like the Enterprise could manufacture anything, including food and water. Thanks to the abundance of resources, money was no longer a concern. People worked to amass reputation, experience and knowledge, rather than material wealth. The cast was even more diverse than its predecessor, with LeVar Burton as the Black Chief Engineer Geordie and three female characters on the main roster. At last, the show was making clear its intentions from the off. Star Trek The Next Generation continued with the allegorical storytelling of its predecessor, but also expanded its scope. Its most popular storyline was the two-part episode Best of Both Worlds, which focused on one of the science fiction's most terrifying enemies, the Borg. 
It was proof that Trek could be an inspirational and thoughtful franchise, while still throwing in the occasional heart-pumping thriller. But there were problems, too. Tasha Yar was killed off towards the end of the first season after her actor, Denise Crosby, resigned. There were rumours that this was due to her involvement with Playboy, but turned out she simply wasn't enjoying the show. Meanwhile, the child actor of Wesley Crusher had few fans, as viewers considered him irritatingly precocious and were reluctant to accept him as a genius who saves the day. His actor, Will Wheaton, survived the hate and has gone on to become an internet icon. Roddenberry's health was failing, and in the sixth season, he passed away. From that point on, the show would continue without him. Before he died, however, he had been consulted about Trek's upcoming show, Deep Space Nine. As with most visionaries, Roddenberry was hardly a perfect person, particularly when it came to women. Accounts from female Star Trek actors indicate that Roddenberry might not have fared too well in the Me Too era. He was also difficult to get along with by some accounts, and many of his co-workers parted with him on less than positive terms. He took legal and illegal drugs both recreationally and as stimulants to keep working late into the night, which most likely contributed to his death. Nonetheless, he possessed two key attributes that would help turn Star Trek into one of the most momentous media franchises of the 20th century. First, he had an uncanny knack for predicting future trends. Second, he was fundamentally optimistic about the future, and believed humankind would grow beyond its struggles in the coming centuries. Racism, nationalism, religious hatred and other forms of discrimination, he believed humanity would leave all of that behind. This optimism seems quaint in the light of today's grim-dark trend although many believe it's what sets Trek apart from its contemporaries. Trek did not slow with the passing of its creator. Star Trek Deep Space Nine came to television in the early 90s, and was unlike any Trek show before or since. Instead of flying about on a spaceship, Deep Space Nine was set on a space station in orbit around the planet named Bajor, near a wormhole leading to another section of the galaxy. The stationary setting allowed the showrunners to experiment with all manner of different kinds of stories, including serialised storytelling, the likes of which had rarely been seen before. This makes it surprisingly bingeable in 2019. Deep Space Nine was also notorious for its darker storylines, in which the so-called utopia of the 24th century humanity was challenged. Babylon 5, a show about a remarkably similar space station, also pioneered story arcs that played out over the course of a series rather than isolated episodes. Controversy surrounds the two series to this day. Babylon aired a few months after Deep Space Nine, but was actually pitched to Paramount before being picked up by Warner. Perhaps Deep Space Nine's most controversial creation was Section 31 a secret part of the Federation charged with carrying out the dirty work that Starfleet was too squeamish to do. Many fans loathed these additions as contrary to Roddenberry's utopian ideals, but others loved the risk-taking and deconstruction. One of Deep Space Nine's most popular aspects was its choice to cast a black man, Avery Brooks, as Commander Benjamin Sisko. 
like Nichelle Nichols and LeVar Burton before him, Brooks was an inspiration to a generation of African Americans. One of the show's most popular and groundbreaking episodes was season six's Far Beyond the Stars, in which Cisco hallucinates an alternate life as a black science fiction writer in the 1950s. It was Brooks's favourite episode, and a damn fine hour of television. Deep Space Nine made some strides forward in representation. It famously included a sort of lesbian kiss in one episode, but showrunners later expressed regret with how little work they did promoting the inclusion of LGBTQ plus characters. The next generation came to its end soon after Deep Space Nine began, but the adventures of the USS Enterprise D continued with the next generation era films. In 1994, Star Trek Generations was released, in which Shatner's Kirk returned and worked with Picard and his crew in a Handing of the Torch-style plot. Several films appeared centred around the adventures of the Next Generation crew, but by 2002 and the release of Star Trek Nemesis, viewing figures had slumped. Nemesis was a dismal failure, and a death knell for any future Trek films, or so it seemed at the time. In the meantime, on television, following the end of The Next Generation, Trek's next incarnation was Star Trek Voyager, which ran from 1995 to 2001. After having the Black Captain, what was the next logical step for Trek? A woman, of course. Yes, Kate Mulgrew was cast as Captain Catherine Janeway, a leader and mother to a crew trapped 70,000 light-years from home. Now, at this point, Trek was suffering from franchise fatigue and, well, Voyager proved to be the least successful series to date. Storylines were arguably uninspired and some characters less than loved. The show found its stride a little bit at the start of season four and the reintroduction of the Borg with the casting of former model Jerry Ryan as the liberated Borg drone Seven of Nine. The move seemed to work. Seven of Nine was a fascinating character in her own right, although her form-fitting cat suit seemed to attract male viewers. Voyager declined in the ratings and ended with a whimper in 2001. Trek's next incarnation, simply called Enterprise, would be its last for more than a decade. Showrunners made a number of choices attempting to recapture the excitement of the fanbase. A white man, Scott Bakula, as Jonathan Archer, was back in the captain's chair, and the first officer, female Vulcan Teapole, was quite sexualised. Enterprise had some interesting threads, but they weren't enough to save it from an early end after only four seasons. Its cancellation in 2005 ended 18 years of Trek, and seemed like a death knell for the series as a whole. Now, Trek has had a number of actors that keep returning to the series, either in their original roles or different ones. Perhaps the most well-known example is Madel Barrett, Roddenberry's widow. She started in Trek's very first incarnation as number one in The Cage, became Nurse Christine Chapel in the original series, and returned as Luxana Troy in The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. Barrett was further involved in the series as the voice of many starship computer systems, from the next generation through Enterprise. Denise Crosby was another popular recurring actor. After leaving the role of Tasha Yar, she returned in later seasons in various roles, including an alternative universe's version of Yar, and her half-Romulan daughter named Kamala Sela. 
Never before had Technobabble been so complex and disturbing. Other popular recurring actors, many of whom remain popular at conventions, include Diana Muldaur, whom two minor roles in the original series, and a one-season regular of The Next Generation as Dr. Pulaski. Mark Alamo, whose prominent neck muscles were the inspiration for the infamous Cardassian neck design, and who played multiple roles across incarnations of the show, and Jeffrey Combs, who, at one point, played two recurring characters of different alien races in the same episode of Deep Space Nine. For almost as long as there has been Trek, there has been tie-in fiction. Over the 50-plus years since the original series, many hundreds of novels, anthologies, comics and other forms of print Trek media have been released. They cover content from across every incarnation of the show and its films. These media are licensed in an interesting way in that they are all considered non-canon. Many of them expand on the stories of popular guest characters, such as Don Delancey's omnipotent Q and Madel Barrett's Loxana Troy. Notable successes include Peter David's Imzadi, which expanded on the pre-Next Generation romantic relationship of William Riker and Deanna Troy. Fonda and McIntyre's The Entropy Effect, which is more of a classic original series adventure, and Andrew J. Robinson's A Stitch in Time, which focuses on the popular Garak he played on Deep Space Nine and was based on a biography he wrote for the character after being cast. Trek Media also includes an extensive non-fiction catalogue. Documentaries, analyses and commentaries about the franchise abound from the recently released fan-funded documentary What We Leave Behind about the much-maligned Deep Space Nine to 1997's Trekkies, a documentary helmed by next-generation actress Denise Crosby about the franchise's legion of fans. Some content, while not exactly Trek, clearly took inspiration from Roddenberry. From 2000 to 2005, alongside Enterprise, Majel Barrett and a Canadian-American team brought Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda to the television scene. It wasn't Trek, exactly, but borrowed from some of Gene Roddenberry's unused concepts, creating a far more dystopian science fiction series starring Kevin Sorbo as Captain Dylan Hunt. Fan-produced audio content has also become quite impressive in recent years. Star Trek Continues was a web series set on the original Enterprise, essentially taking over where the original series had left off. The show, partly funded by Kickstarter, starred professional actors and fans of Trek in the roles formerly occupied by William Shatner and others, and released 11 episodes from 2012 to 2017. Other fan-produced Kickstarter-backed production was Prelude to Axanar, starring some Trek alumni in an attempt to demonstrate that quality Trek films could be made on a limited budget. The film was considered successful as a proof of concept. Even those with little exposure to Star Trek are likely familiar with the franchise reboot by J.J. Abrams in 2009. Abrams saw in Trek a kind of media similar to classical music, it would find a wider audience if it just added in a bit more jazz. He cast younger actors as the original crew of the Enterprise and proceeded to make a blockbuster hit. The reboot was controversial among fans for a number of reasons. 
Not least Abraham's notorious lens flares, but it created a surge of renewed interest in the franchise and led to two more feature films and a new television series in 2017. The films added little to the franchise as a whole, save the razzle-dazzle of modern special effects, but were commercially successful. Interest waned as Abrams turned his attention to Star Wars, renewing tensions between fans of the two science fiction franchises. Now all this brings us to the present. A fourth film in the rebooted Kelvin universe seems unlikely. But Trek lives on in the two television series currently in development under CBS All Access. Star Trek Discovery has been out for two seasons and, after a lacklustre first season, seems to be finding its legs. Star Trek Picard is coming soon, with Sir Patrick Stewart returning as an older Jean-Luc Picard following his retirement from Starfleet. For added nostalgia, Brent Spiner will be returning as the next generation's data, and Jerry Ryan will be returning as Anika Hansen, also known as Seven of Nine from Voyager. At the moment, Discovery seems to be leading the way on the diversity avenue, with a black female lead and an openly gay crew member. While it is unclear what Picard will add to the table beyond a welcome return to the gentle wisdom of Stuart's captain. It's an interesting time to be a Trekkie. It's yet to become clear what the place of the series is in 2019 as the optimism of Roddenberry's utopian vision and the allegorical roots of the series seem to have been supplanted by snazzy special effects and copious heaps of nostalgia. Nonetheless, for 50 years, Star Trek has been a cultural leader in television and an inspiration for those who hope for a future utopia. Let's talk about the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. We couldn't decide who should get to review Netflix's latest fantasy tour de force, so Tom gave his thoughts and then Alan and Beth Folds, our guest contributor, responded. Tom is new to the franchise, Beth saw the original film in the cinema the first time around, and Alan has bumped up against the franchise once or twice in a professional context. The making of the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance documentary on Netflix lines up the cast and the crew of Netflix's new 10-episode fantasy prequel of the 1982 film to talk about how much the film meant to them and affected their childhoods. If they and similar coverage are to be believed, the Dark Crystal had a cultural impact similar to Star Wars. It might have the apparently quite large proportion of the production team with the Henson in their name, but for most people the 1982 Jim Henson movie The Dark Crystal is mostly known for being a bit shit and less good than Labyrinth. That's certainly the impression I got when I watched it for the first time. An ambitious, dreamlike, poorly plotted and visually spectacular film. It puzzled critics upon release and only gained a cult status in recent years with the forgiveness that nostalgia brings. Yeah, I disagree. I mean, if you were a child of the right age when it hit theatres or, or home video, the Dark Crystal movie was like a goddamn secret society. Hmm? You should watch this. Yeah, I know the puppets, but trust me. The disgusting, disturbing skexis and the plodding, goody-goody mystics, the gelflings burdened with the task of saving the world. And, of course, when you're a kid, you tend to let the word salad world-building flow over you. As important culturally as Star Wars, 
maybe not. But I was never so viscerally moved by any film. The baddies literally sucked the life out of the lower order beings. Characters were disintegrated. Grotesqueries paraded across the screen. Darkness, the horror. And we could get away with watching it because puppets. Yeah. I suggest its cult status is a function of the indelible mark it left on so many of my generation. And it may naturally colour my view of the series somewhat. Yeah. I agree with Beth here. The film was a massive, seminal part of my childhood. The lack of impact, by comparison to the Star Wars franchise, was more down to the commercial deals done for toy lines, for sandwich boxes, bedspreads and the like. The new series is a glorious, technicolor feast of original fantasy. There are a smattering of computer-generated bits, mostly to add life to action scenes and animate puppets' ridiculous faces, but it's nearly all done in the old-fashioned way. I can't imagine this making great waves in, say, 1990, but after 20 years of CGI gluttony, a fantasy story told without computers is actually really refreshing. You're never going to see me complaining about people being consistent to an original vision. Brian Froud, the original artist, is a genius, and The Dark Crystal was a massive showcase of his work, which led people around the world getting to see his ideas. I owned the visual storybook as a child, and I still have copies of the books they produced. The art of The Dark Crystal is fabulous. The creature design is marvellous. The animal denizens and the mythical planet of Tra are inventively weird. Think Gelmo de Toro, but less scary. Jim Henson famously stipulated that the entire feel of his fantasy world would be not like of this earth. And this has certainly carried through. In fact, there appears to be a, perhaps unwarranted, reverential approach to the original film. That means that very few creatures didn't appear in 1982. It's stunning in the same way that Stardust was, incredible vistas of sweeping mountain ranges and verdant plains, locales that take your breath away. Yeah, they've taken the limited palette of the original movie and gone wild, and yet they've done it without really changing what you remember. <laughs> this is probably another function of watching it when young enough to let imagination fill in all the blanks left by a, a lower level of technical skill than is possible today. They've fleshed out the world with an astonishing abundance of nature, culture and technology in much the way the Lord of the Rings fleshes out the world of The Hobbit. This offering is a substantial and meaty bite and still manages to have space for fizz gigs. It is also spectacularly, crazily, prodigiously expensive. Netflix appears to have given Hennesons a blank check. Filming took place over 80 different sets. Every flower, blade of grass, tree branch and butterfly was designed by someone by hand. This makes every scene a visual delight. But perhaps the best example of profligacy is in voice actors. The puppets are voiced by the likes of Mark Strong, Simon Pegg, Mark Hamill and Helena Boynham Carter, among others. Sigourney Weaver pops up to narrate a few sentences in the series opening. Despite having watched most films in which she appeared, I didn't realize it was her, so any benefit her casting brings to the production must be in the big name association. Unless these stars are doing it for the sheer love of the thing, this is a gratuitous expense. Natalie Dormer, for example, plays Onika, the bittiest of the bit characters who appears in about two episodes as a bag carrier for a slightly more memorable bit character. Why is she here? What about this forgettable extra demands the skill of a famous film actor? It is unclear what these presumably expensive Hollywooders add that a capable voice actor could not. 
I would ask the actors, are they doing it for the check or for the fact that this is a dream project? I mean, Simon Pegg nailed the Chancellor's simpering whimper in a way that can only have come from someone who knew what the love-to-hate character meant to fans. I mean, maybe it's just another notch on his belt in terms of being involved in every single great franchise of our childhood. Uh, Star Trek, Star Wars, The Chronicles of Narnia and uh, plenty of others. As if Tim, his character from his TV series Spaced, got all his dreams granted at once. But in any case, how many of the big-name actors jumped to the chance because of love? Oh, agreed. There's massive love for this project. It was seminal to people's childhoods. Simon Pegg's Spaced was a confession to his fandom, and this is an extension of that, being a part of what he loved. A good point. Simon Pegg did an absolutely masterful job as the Chancellor, one of the series' best characters. As for the story, though, it's the same old dribblingly forgettable plot as usual. A little band of plucky, photogenic teenagers set by a Gandalf analogue on the course to liberate the land. The Gandalf figure is the Augra, the eminently watchable, huffing, stomping old crone, and another of the series' best characters. The heroes, however, are all sorts of insipid paragons of virtue you come across all clapped up of this nature. Their only faults are the non-faults, like impetuousness or being too trusting, and as soon as they are introduced to each other they're the best of bloody friends, resulting in a many a saccharine reference to the magic of friendship. I don't want to be a snooty reviewer claiming that every fantasy story has to be a Hamlet. Age of Resistance isn't aggressively formulaic. Netflix are chin-juttingly proud of the strong female character they've included, which is fair enough, although the strong certainly doesn't mean believable and memorable in this case. But it's still a missed opportunity. The hero, Rian, has no discernible characteristics whatsoever. I watched them scamper winsomely across the land for 10 hours of my life, and I couldn't tell you a single thing about his preferences, attitudes, fears, or ambitions. What do I know about him? He's sad that his dad is dead. Other than that, he's just another male lead from every other adventure story ever to cross Atlantic in this direction. The same goes with the female leads too. They're not characters, they're archetypes. And why do they have to be pretty and young? What would be so wrong to have a sword-wielding hero being a bit fat, or queer, or old, or ugly, or anything remotely interesting at all? Hmm. If I had any criticism, it would echo this. Every single lead female is white blonde. Hmm. I mean, even the grotten deet is just slightly green in skin and a bit messier of hair. But yeah, having three sisters who are of the same clan and look more or less the same could be confusing at times, especially at the start. Another criticism might be the amount of world-building that was top-loaded onto an introductory narration. Yes, there are seven clans, three of which we have very little exploration of, but perhaps this could have been unveiled in less of an info dump. It did make the first episode or two feel more dry and factual than emotional and engaging. I wouldn't be that harsh about the plot, but I would say it's a weakness, and in many ways a vehicle for the characters and the events to come. It's surprising how much the nostalgia card plays here. The struggle of Jem and Kyra was desperate, the ending of their species so tragic and final. Despite the fact that we know the doom of Gelflings is going to happen, there's a deep resonance to the fellowship and comradeship that connected with me in a way that otherwise only the Lord of the Rings is able to do. 
The problem with strong archetypes like that is there's lack of moral nuance. The Gelfling are charming, wide-eyed hobbits who spend their days being lovely to each other and making friends with woodland animals. The memorable 1982 villains, the Skeksis, look like zombie birds of prey who shuffle their rotting corpses around the set, boasting how nefarious they are. Grimdark, this isn't. It's pantomime. The series delights in killing off ancillary characters slowly and dramatically and expecting us to care. In one last episode, the decisively B-list character carks it over a course of about an hour's screen time after having a sword thrust through her. The death is drawn out and melodramatic, but I barely remember who the character was and she's done nothing on note for the entire series. This could be the casualty of production and editing. Storyboarded, this character could have been very memorable, with their own interesting arc and fleshed out personality. Much of that, if it ever existed, has been left on the cutting room's floor, forcing us to watch this labored death with no emotional skin in the game. Yes, that wasn't a great moment in the plot. I think when they got people together, they were struggling to deal with the ensemble and gave everyone a role. Plus, Killing off a character raises the stakes, right? Age of Resistance is full of this sort of thing, expecting us to mourn a character they made no attempt to flesh out, expecting us to recognize the bonds of friendship between characters who have just met, expecting us to be moved when a character loses a parent we've only heard four or five lines from. With a few exceptions, the characters are wooden, boring archetypes of the genre who spews wooden, boring lines. Think, we've got to stop them, or you'll never get away with this, and so on. How is it that we routinely make series and films that are astounding in visuals, sound and effects, but so painfully trite in character and plot? Whether this is a problem for you will really depend on whether you are content to be entertained or ask to be interested too. You may not. It's a kid's film expanded into a series for adults and kids. I, I think that the audience is going to need to set expectations accordingly. Mm. Game of Thrones, it isn't, but that's something to be relieved about, <laughs> considering there are puppets involved. I mean, there are plenty of childhood themes we all understood well enough when we were young. Mm. Saving the world, sacrificing everything for friends, defying parental expectations. I found it interesting enough to watch all the way through without tuning out, and unlike many shows, I limited a number of episodes to watch per night so I could savour it more fully, but your mileage may always vary. I can certainly agree that there are a few well-budgeted productions that get funded for something other than the story. Here, the story of the series isn't its strongest element, although there are exceptions. Skekmal the Hunter is a new story drawn from the novels, comics, and from the briefing materials from 2014. Whenever he's part of an episode, everything gains pace and tension. The duality of the mystics and the Skeksis is definitely one of the series' narrative strengths, and that several of both are left unintroduced only adds to the intrigue. I do think that the series tells its story spectacularly. I would have happily watched ten episodes of nothing more than the creatures ferreting around and the locales take your breath away. It is undoubtedly the most impressive piece of puppetry the world has ever seen. Once you've watched it and its namesake, you no doubt will be aware that the end of the Netflix series does not obviously lead into the beginning of the 1982 film, despite being a prequel. So we can no doubt expect more from the Gelflings and the Skeksis next year. Original Fiction 
Erdenfeu. The castle was decimated, a blackened and pockmarked shell of all that remained, as if it had been the target of an airstrike. Overhead the maroon sky boiled and churned. Lightning flashed, thunder boomed. Flashes of electrical discharge revealing the ground underfoot in grisly illuminated horror, blood and guts for carpet. Erden! Erden! I dimly registered Yarmina screaming my name. The creature's cries were deafening. Years of artillery fire, gunshots at close range and death metal music had never felt as loud as this. The soldiers behind me kept firing, a cacophony of panicked cracks in the night. Agony drove me forward. I noted that I had lost part of my right arm, as if someone had taken a bite out of the muscle near the shoulder. My face was smeared in swiftly cooling gore. Incandescent emerald eyes settled on me, muzzle flashes lighting its grotesque head in monstrous staccato. Something between frog, wolf and crocodile, I would stammer later. A nasal cavity that looked underdeveloped. Physical trauma has an odd effect of cementing trivial detail in high definition in your memory. A gust of wind tousled Yarmina's grey pixie cut. She had highlights and her eyes were wide. She had been right all along. We should never have entered the purple haze portal without reconnaissance. She was right most of the time, I privately acknowledged. There was enough of her I-told-you-sos already. I had adored her for years. The gunnies at the base told me they had seen her with a pretty boy on shore leave. That outright disqualified me. I was anything but pretty. Ain't never gonna happen, they would say, whenever I was caught stealing a glance. During a bombardment, once in the middle of the Southland rainforest, our carrier went down. Command ordered everyone to lay low until help arrived. Seven days we spent in each other's company. It was the best 168 hours of my life. At the end of a night of stargazing outside the village, I finally gathered the courage to make my move. For a brief moment she returned my stare, then burst out in laughter. A friendly punch on the shoulder. You're such a goofball, she said. When the portal appeared, she was the first one to loudly question a manned mission without drone reconnaissance. But the lab coats were sure. Their scans showed no signs of danger. Their hypothesis was that it was some gateway to another world. Instead, we ended up only 20 miles from the base, facing a foe that wouldn't die. I returned to the awful present, shouting. The beast opened its mouth, its jaws distending, unhinged, revealing teeth and gore. Its saliva splashed onto my face. It was warm, sticky, and smelled like rotten eggs. Hold on, Yamina shouted, directing the soldiers to cover her. In a flash, the creature was upon me. I was alone. A snaking tongue lashed out, flicking across my face as I tried to dodge away. For some reason, it didn't immediately tear me apart. It was as though it was studying me. I was strangely calm, noting a small round object flying through the air towards us. Grenade! The blinding flash made the monster flinch, and I broke free, equally disoriented. Laser surgery had made my eye sensitive to light. I managed to scoop up my gun from the ground, but as I turned to aim it, my legs gave way and the world seemed to spin. I pointed it at the creature awkwardly, targeting an arm. My balance was off and palms sweaty, but when the gun kicked reassuringly into my shoulder, I saw the grey limb arc cleanly away from the socket. Cyan blood. A hellish scream filled the night. Bizarrely, the noise made me think of the time I fell from the third-floor window of the family house, breaking my leg. 
A viscous, lumpy slime spilled out of the beast's mouth. It smelled vile, like a dead rat covered in fresh vomit. This time, the creature stepped back, clearly in pain and fearful of our weapons. Its cries of agony were oddly recognisable. Again, I thought back to my own experiences. That time I had been shot in the stomach on mission, and spent the whole journey back to base writhing in pain on the floor of the evacuation shuttle. We were clearly winning. I took a few steps forward, and so did others. Shouts of encouragement from Yarmina and her veterans rallied the troops, driving them on. Then the creature picked up a boulder with impossible ease and threw it at the regiment. I saw at least three soldiers go down and six more flee the scene. It was wounded, but still very dangerous. It arched its back and screamed out a cry of defiance to the heavens. Flashes of lightning spat across the sky in response. Then it crouched down and charged. Straight at me. I swallowed hard, but this time my hands were steady and I knew what to do. In one swift motion, I plucked a smart bomb from my belt and heaved it through the air and into the monster's open mouth. The explosive lodged into its throat and it began to gag. Run! I yelled, punching a sequence of commands on my watch. As I followed the swiftly retreating backs of the soldiers, I heard the detonation and felt the muffled impact as its gore peppered the grass. Portal! Yamina shouted. Looking up, I saw the window in the air shimmering erratically, much less stable than it had been when we entered. Go! 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 I ran towards it. Everyone fled, sprinting for the distortion. As the last of the regiment fell through, back into normal daylight and fresh air, the purple hue dissipated and the portal winked out of existence. The sun was shining brightly. As my eyes adjusted, the familiar lines of the base settled into view. Later, the doctors looked me over with evident concern. A few hundred photos, half a dozen vials of blood and a handful of x-rays. Yarmina sat watching from the opposite bunk, munching protein bars. A nurse stitched up the hanging bits from my arm and sutured the wound. Animal attack? she asked, busily applying the dressing. Something like that, Yarmina answered for me. Could you give me something for the pain? I asked quietly. I'll ask the doctor, the nurse replied, leaving the tent. Yarmina slid off the bunk, picked up a cloth and wiped the side of my mouth. What are you doing? She frowned. You're dribbling, can't you tell? I was embarrassed. Sorry. Don't worry. You look tired, she said. We have a long day of debriefing tomorrow. Rest up. At chow time the following day, I sat quietly staring at my plate. Breakfast had tasted like a kitchen sponge and lunch was no different. Yarmina watched me with concerned curiosity while sipping a diet soda. What's wrong? she asked in a low voice. Nothing, I replied. She leaned forward. You're sweating. And you clearly have no appetite. Something is definitely wrong. We have to go back to sickbay. Let's give it another day, I stalled, swallowing my afternoon medication. She stared levelly at me for a moment. What did you find out about the castle, I asked, trying to change the subject. The database description reads like a horror novel, she said. Monster sightings, strange disappearances, people seeing their dead relatives. If it's something horrible, it's happened at Dornham. Anything from the squints, I asked. You mean the scientists, she replied. Yeah, the brass sent a field team out to the castle on our side. 
They found unusually high levels of radiation, and the electrical activity is off the charts. Nothing to explain the portal or the creature. We should lock it down, I said. Set up a perimeter. She frowned. It was a popular tourist spot. The townsfolk won't close it down without good reason. Flesh-munching nightmare things don't qualify, I asked. That's actually a selling point, she smoked. What kind of world are we living in, I mumbled. Before Yarmina could answer, I felt my insides churning, a sharp sting at the base of my stomach. I gagged. My breakfast saw daylight. The wretches forced everyone's attention. Yarmina tossed me a paper towel and quickly dragged me out of the mess hall. I passed out somewhere between the entrance, the barracks and my bunk bed. In the evening, my team endured several rounds of interrogations. It was hard to explain what we'd seen. What was it? asked the colonel for the fourth or fifth time. I honestly could not tell you, sir, was my perennial response. The base scientists were baffled by the portal and could not offer us any explanation about it. What else can you remember? The thing, I started, the creature, it was trying to communicate something. I tried to explain what I felt I knew for the seventh or eighth time. Any idea what it was trying to say, they continued? It wasn't any language that I'd ever heard. It wasn't words, exactly, I mumbled. And so we got nowhere. The questions were repetitive and the entire exercise tiring. But once everyone's stories were down on paper and broadly matched up, the brass couldn't think of anything else to ask us. The following day, I asked Yelmina to look up Dornham Castle on the satellite scanner. She pulled up the logs and a live feed. It was standing tall, flawless. Being the town's tourism cash cow, it was teeming with brightly coloured anoraks and backpacks. But something at the back of my mind bothered me. It niggled at me. I felt that something bad was about to happen. I had to see it. Prevent it. The arm that the creature had damaged was plastered up immobile, so I couldn't drive. My skin had gone an awful grey colour, almost greenish. Noises made me flinch, and anything brighter than the dim glow of the moon hurt my eyes. If I was going to do something, it had to be soon. I felt sure I'd be quarantined before long. I requested a ride to the castle on a base transport. The journey was awful. I sweated profusely. You okay, sir? one of the escorting soldiers asked. I nodded dishonestly. No, I was not okay. I was running a fever, but also showing the symptoms of cyanosis. My fingers looked like they were swelling, under the fingernails. Somebody was playing Jenga with my internal organs. I turned over my hand. Oh my God, I blurted. My palms were now grey and my skin was coming away. Big flakes like scales. I realised that my breath smelled. Halitosis. Disgusted, I started panic breathing. Suddenly my tongue felt swollen. A god-awful rumble in my stomach. Stop the transport, I said, in a voice that was not mine. When they did not, I panicked. I scrabbled at the door handle. I couldn't seem to grasp it, so I hurled my weight against it. It sheared off at the hinges. I leapt out. I felt my clothes constricting me and heard the tear of cloth. What the... I tried to say, but the sounds came out unrecognisable. I was a prisoner inside my own body. A frightened soldier fired two rockets from the roof-mounted cannons of the transport. They missed me widely, but I heard the crack and tumble of masonry as they struck the castle. Limestone and wood scattered around me. I turned to see the castle ruined, the tourists and the visitors blown away, 
Grizzly remains lit at the ground. Then the transport disappeared. Suddenly the sky darkened. Mauve, then maroon. Web-like shapes danced in the rolling clouds as thunder rolled. My body was bulging, changing, grotesque. My fingers ached as bones lengthened, bursting from my fingertips. As I felt my humanity ebbing away, I saw a bizarre rent in the air, behind where the transport had been. The air around it shimmered purple, silhouettes within. Then from it emerged a man who looked exactly like me, a clutch of soldiers at his back, and Yarmina. Thank you for listening to Parallel Worlds Issue 3. This issue featured articles written by Alan Stroud, Ant Jones, Ben Potts, Christopher Jarvis, Connor Edels, Jane Cluett, Louis Calvert, Mezeb R. Chowdhury, Richard Watson, Thomas Turnbull Ross, and Tom Grundy, and was edited by Alan Stroud, Jane Cluett, and Tom Grundy. This audio edition featured the voices of Kareem Cromfley, Peter Wotherspoon, Sarah Golding, Yamix, and Tom Grundy, and was edited by Ashley Devine, Christopher Jarvis, and Peter Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll. We would like to thank our Patreon subscribers for their continued support. For copies of back issues of our magazine and podcasts, visit our website at www.parallelworlds.uk. Thank you.